Welcome, welcome, welcome into A Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, Scripture, the Church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. My first exposure to Jonah came in 2002, when VeggieTales produced their classic movie, Jonah. It convinced six-year-old me of two things. First, God's compassion and mercy, and second, the historicity of the story of Jonah. Fifteen years later, when I read Jonah myself for the first time, many things surprised me, but the NIV Life Application Study Bible's proclamation of its accuracy did not. It was enough for me to accept and trust the Bible study's description of the book's author, Jonah, the original audience, Israel, the date, somewhere between 785 and 760 BC, and the setting when Jonah ministered to Jeroboam II while enemy Assyria loomed. But a few months into my internship at the church I was attending at the time, my pastor casually declared that Jonah was satire while we were having a meeting. I was taken aback then. But the years have proven that he was not alone in his deconstruction of scripture. In fact, a quick Google search will pull up countless of opinions on both sides of the issue, defending why they believe that Jonah is either a historical account or a parable slash satire. Contemporary scholarship is in general agreement following many of the critiques and deconstructions of scripture and its doctrine of infallibility. The question then, is if millennia of Bible interpretation have been wrong until the last several centuries in their claims of Jonah's historicity, and subsequently how that affects interpretation and and application. In this podcast, I will seek an answer as I explore what the various opinions are and why they have made those conclusions. Then I will see what the text says of itself and if any evidence does exist for its historicity. Before we do that, I want to dive into the story. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole book. It's, it's a short book, and you can read it in maybe 10 minutes, so I encourage you to do that. It's great. It's awesome. But here I'm just going to give a quick summary of it. It's found in the Minor Prophets, in English Bibles and and Hebrew Bibles as well, right behind Obadiah. It's a four-chapter book, and we will explore those. So in chapter one, Jonah gets a call from Yahweh to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't like that. He refused to heed God's call to go to Nineveh, and he sailed instead to Tarshish, which is the opposite end of the world. And then a a storm brew on the sea. And after some interactions with the pagan sailors on the ship, Jonah was thrown into the sea and a large fish swallowed him up. In chapter 2, Jonah prays to Yahweh, thanking him for saving him, declaring that salvation belongs to Yahweh. After that, Yahweh causes the fish to spit Jonah out, and he's alive, but he was in the sea for some time. Now then, in in chapter 3, 
Jonah finally obeyed the call to go to Nineveh and preach the coming judgment. When he declares that in 40 days judgment is coming, the people and the king and the animals mourn, fast, and repent. And in response to their repentance, Yahweh relented of the coming disaster in accordance with the declaration of who Yahweh is from Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Then in chapter 4, Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed the way Sodom and Gomorrah was. So he sat down and waited for smoke and fire and sulfur to rain down from heaven and decimate the city of Nineveh. But it never happened. Jonah got mad for God being compassionate. While he was sulking in his anger, Yahweh graciously gave shade to Jonah by growing a tree, a vine. And then Yahweh took it away and Jonah got angrier. And then Yahweh confronted Jonah. And it ends with this question from Yahweh asking Jonah if Yahweh should not be compassionate for these 120,000 people in Nineveh and also many animals who do not know their left from their right. Again, go read the story for yourself, but that is a quick synopsis of this story. So now a lot of people have interpreted it differently. I want to highlight two sources right now of people who have weighed in on the conversation. So Bible Project is a channel on YouTube and a pretty popular Bible resource that puts out videos following themes throughout the Bible. You can call them biblical theologies of hope and grace and other word studies like that. They also do individual videos on books of the Bible. They did one on Jonah and then there's, there was a guy, he is an expert in Assyria. He's an archaeologist. The official title is Assyriologist. His name is Donald J. Wiseman. He gave a lecture on the historicity of Jonah in the 70s. So those are two pretty prominent resources I looked at. And now I want to dive into some of the reasons that the Bible Project says that Jonah is a satire. First off, one of the quotes it says is that Jonah is the subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. The video goes on to highlight that Jonah's character is already questionable based on what they called mixed messages from the other time that Jonah was mentioned in scripture, which is 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 through 25. And then they reference, they cross-reference it to Amos 6, 13 through 14, in which, according to their interpretation, there was a mixed message about what Jonah was prophesying and what Yahweh actually wanted. Now, I'm just going to say right up front, that was a poor hermeneutic on their end, leading to a poor understanding of Jonah's character coming into this story, but they said that understanding the Second King's story 
should put in mind that we should question the character of Jonah and read it as ironic. Furthermore, they, they say that there are unexpected actions by stereotyped characters. And then kind of their thesis, I guess, of Jonah is that this kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. So that's a direct quote from the video. But that's not the only source of people who say that, that Jonah is a satire. Like I said earlier, I looked online and found a bunch of different sources on people's opinions. I found Bible commentaries and academic papers and Christian blogs and churches' introductions to their Jonah series. There was even a film critic who taught at the University of Miami who taught Jonah as satire, and he wrote kind of a paper on this. So let me list for you some of the reasons that they have given. Some of these are direct quotes from the places I found. Some of them are, are my summaries of what they said. So here's the list. Jonah 3.9 is similar to Joel 2.14, suggesting that Jonah was a late work. You can go and, and check those passages yourself. Other reasons are the miracle of the great fish. Nineveh and its historicity in its history were exaggerated. People say that there's no evidence for Nineveh's mass repentance. People point to Jonah not being a covenant enforcer to rebellious Israel, but a missionary to a foreign land. Jonah said no to God. Jonah ran away from God. Jonah's whole personality represents Israel. Jonah's the only character in the story to disobey God. Tarshish, though a real place, could have been used to mean the middle of nowhere, kind of like we say, I'm going to Timbuktu to indicate that we're just going to a really far remote place. The emphasis on the animals is comical, especially since they are included in wearing sackcloth. Jonah's continual anger at God. Satire is used in other places in scripture. All of scripture is a comedy by genre. The view of God's universalist mercy is propaganda. It echoes the hero's journey, like the Odyssey. Jonah is narrative, not poetry. The length of the sermon when he preached to Nineveh about the coming judgment. The supposed morale is to address xenophobia. There's an incongruence of Jonah's prayer to circumstances. And finally, Jonah's use of Jonah does not guarantee historicity, for he did not exegete the passage for the Pharisees. So those are 21 reasons that people say Jonah was and is a satire. Now, before I evaluate those, I want to list some reasons why people on the other side of the argument say it's accurate. If you want to check out these sources on their own, you can check out the source list that I'll put in the description and you can explore the primary sources and not just my interpretation of what's going on. So now the, the reasons that other people say it is history. First, Jonah begins with a Hebrew conjunction, specifically the one that's translated either now or and, 
suggesting that it's actually a continuation from Obadiah, which is presumed to be historical. Jonah is in the middle of the twelve, the, the twelve minor prophets, minor not in importance, but minor in length. This book of the twelve was considered one book, and its contents are, have always been presumed to be historical. Miracles are not viewed as fantastic to the rest of scripture, nor to the God it reveals. Jesus' use of Jonah's story pointed to his, Christ's, understanding that he would spend time in the grave and be rescued from death as Jonah was. In other words, Jonah himself was the sign to the Ninevites, who eventually pointed to Jesus, not simply the moral of the story. Furthermore, Nineveh's chief deity at the time was the fish goddess Nanshi. If Jonah had survived being in the belly of their goddess, plus surviving the ocean, which in that time cross-culturally represented chaos and death and destruction, then they would have had reason to believe his message. Jews believed in the canonicity and historicity of Jonah, even amid syncretism, which is the combining of Jewish monotheism as well as the polytheism of the pagan religions around them. So they, they worshipped Yahweh, but they also worshipped the others. So in the midst of this syncretism and Hellenization, which is the influence of Greek culture, including Philo's attempted reconciling of the Hebrew Bible and Platonism, the philosophy of Plato, even in all of those, Jews continued to believe in the canonicity and historicity of the story of Jonah, and that didn't change when many of the Jews in the first century began following Jesus and established the early church. When Jesus talked about it, he pointed to the repentance of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba and her journey to Solomon's temple assuming all of them to be real events and real people, and he used those in the context of warning the Pharisees against their unbelief and self-righteousness. And it was all in the same sentence, the same paragraph, and no scholars questioned the historicity of the Queen of Sheba's visit. Additionally, Jesus clearly believed that future judgment was going to be a real event, in none of these arguments did Jesus delineate between story and real life. He based his predictions of himself, his death and resurrection, and the future judgment on what he believed to be true events. Jonah's story is an oracle embedded in the narrative, like Elijah and Elisha. No one questions that Elijah and Elisha were real accounts of history. They might question the miracles themselves, but they didn't question Elijah or Elisha in their ministry. Contextually, Jonah deals with Nineveh's repentance, followed by Micah's prediction of their judgment, of their pride, and Nahum concludes it with the judgment. Those are the three books that come in sequence in the Twelve. Together, they've painted a full picture of Nineveh's relationship with Yahweh. There's no explicit internal indicators that say it is not historical. And you can compare that with the Gospels, which are full of parables, 
in which the author clearly introduces some of Jesus's parables with uh, with phrases such as, and he told them many things in parables. That's a quote from Matthew 13, where Jesus gives a bunch of parables about the kingdom of God. And this book doesn't include an explanation afterward like many of Jesus's parables did. Also, parables are not this long. And if it is a parable based on its structure, then we can call into question many other biblical narratives. One author questioned if we know for certain whether surviving being swallowed by a fish is impossible. It, we presume it is, but we, we don't know for sure. Furthermore, the scope and the scale of biblical skepticism is only a product of the Enlightenment and various methods of understanding and interpreting and critiquing the Bible, such as literary critical method and the like. And finally, that Jonah is unique among the prophets and has satirical elements in themselves do not necessitate that Jonah is entirely deviant from the other prophets or is satire. So those are many of the claims that people on both ends of the argument have put into the discussion about whether or not Jonah was real and historical or just a satire. So before I, I get to evaluating these, I want to highlight the significance of the debate. Throughout scripture, the biblical authors included many stories called parables that didn't happen. Again, like I mentioned earlier, Jesus used them frequently to teach the crowds. Luke 15 is an example of these. Matthew 13 is another example. These short stories may or may not have truly happened, but the audience understood that the truth which they proclaimed was the story's point and message. They were not claiming to be accurate accounts of, of events, but ways to convey spiritual or practical information in accessible ways because people often relate well to stories. Or the intent was to shield spiritual truths from skeptics because they were unwilling to think humbly and seek humbly and pray and ask. Therefore, the parable's impact did not depend on its historicity. On the other hand, scripture also includes many stories that the authors claimed to have happened. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection are such examples. The point and message in these accounts is that they happened and continue to impact lives today through belief in them. Because the authors claimed that these actually happened, it matters whether they did or not. For people who believe that the resurrection happened would remain hopeless, separated from God, and under his wrath if it did not. Paul goes into this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19, in defense of the resurrection. Now, the same principle applies to Jonah. If the book claims to be a parable then its message and purpose are not contingent on the reliability of the story. If, however, Jonah claims to report real history, then the book, and indeed all of scripture, loses its significance, purpose, power, and inerrancy if it is found to be incorrect. So now I want to look at the text itself and look at some evidence that Jonah is claiming to be historical some internal claims of historicity. 
I want to start with Obadiah because, like I said earlier, it is a continuation of that prophetic book. So Jonah starts in verse 1-1, Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. It's the only prophetic book that has a conjunction on it, linking it to the previous book. That's not to say that the other ones aren't linked, but the conjunction there that we translate and or now has a direct, explicit connection to Obadiah before. And if we look at Obadiah, it's claiming to be history. Like the other prophets, it's built upon a recollection of past historical events leading up to future events as if they literally did happen and then will literally happen. Obadiah listed actions Edom did to Jacob. Edom was the the nation that descended from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Scripture calls Edom Israel's brother. So Edom did some things to Jacob, including violence mentioned in in verse 10, and standing aloof as strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates in verse 11 of Obadiah. These events became the basis for Edom's future judgment before God's coming kingdom. That is the context that dives into Jonah. This indicates that they are intended as two parts of the same text. And it would be untenable to assert that the text would abruptly change genres without warning. So next, I want to look at the similarity of other prophetic literature. I took the superscription, which is the first verse that introduces each of the prophetic books. There are 15 of them. In the order that it appears in the Hebrew Bible, There's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So in this document, I went in and color-coded all of the similar or repeated words among these 15 prophetic books. There is a lot of overlay. Words like the start 10 of the 15 prophets. Every single one of the 15 uses the prophet's name in the superscription. 11 of the 15 use word or words, meaning the word of the Lord, or these are the words that ex-prophet spoke. Three of them use the word vision. Three of them use oracle. Nine of them directly reference Yahweh's name. Three of them reference time elements. But there are only two completely unique features. There's an an that starts Nahum 1-1, and then the conjunction, the Hebrew conjunction that we translate as and or now in Jonah 1-1. Strikingly, these both focus on Nineveh. So when you cross-reference all of these similarities, you get this picture that that there is a lot of overlap and similarity between or among all of the prophets. And Jonah has, with the exception of now, very, very, very similar, if not exact, similarities with the rest of 
the superscriptions in the prophetic literature. Jonah 1.1 starts, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So you can compare those. I'm going to read the superscription of each one. Jeremiah 1.1 says the words of Jeremiah. Ezekiel 1, 1-3 is in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Isaiah starts the vision of Isaiah. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. The words of Amos. The vision of Obadiah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. In the second year of Darius the king. In the sixth month on the first day of the month. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. In the eighth month in the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So I went through those really quickly because I just want you to hear the similarities of all of these words. Jonah's only deviation is that it starts with now. And we already talked about the significance of that. So the similarity of Jonah's superscription to the other 14 prophetic books superscriptions indicates that the author intended it to be read in the same way as the rest prophetic literature. In contrasting Jonah to other scriptural parables, we see a lot of differences. For example, Jesus' parables did not explicitly mention the Lord or his word coming to a prophet, but Jonah is built upon Yahweh's working and speaking to a prophet within the narrative. Parables in other places in scripture are told from one person to another, but Jonah is written in the same way that the other prophets were written. And you can compare this to 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 4, which is the parable that Nathan the prophet told King David after his adultery with Bathsheba. Parables in other places in scripture were stories that people had, in co had common experience with, but people certainly did not have common experience with any event in Jonah. Parables in other ancient Near East texts do not include miracles, so based on the similarities that Jonah has with prophetic literature and the differences it has with other biblical parables, it is best to conclude that Jonah is internally claiming to be prophetic literature with its meaning grounded in history. So now I want to look at some evidence of historicity that exists. I mentioned earlier the archaeologist, the Assyriologist Donald J. Wiseman. Again, he gave a lecture to evaluate claims against Jonah's historicity. He said that little positive archaeological evidence exists to prove the narrative, but he also said that many arguments against the story are unconvincing, and that was the point of his lecture. On the positive end, Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser I referenced hunting a massive and unusual fish off the Phoenician coast. So perhaps there was a very large fish that existed. He lived around 1000 BC. Perhaps this fish lived and produced other large fish for when in the 8th century BC 
Jonah was written. So that's positive evidence. On the negative side, to fight against claims, claiming that Jonah is impossible, he gave a couple. First, the size of Nineveh. People doubt that Nineveh could have truly lived up to the great picture of scripture, saying that it served merely to highlight the hyperbolic language of the text, making it merely a parable. Great taken from Jonah 1-2 and throughout scripture. But instead, Wiseman suggested a few options. One, the great could have referred to Nineveh being an important or royal city, and he compared that to Jeremiah 22.8 and Joshua 10.2, where there are references to important and royal cities. Jonah 3.3 could be read as a divinely great city, pointing to Nineveh's many gods and goddesses, their polytheism. And finally, a three-day's journey could refer to Nineveh's distance from another city. There's biblical precedent in Ezekiel 42.4 and Zechariah 3.7 for both of those options. Or the customary time of hospitality in the administrative district could be what Jonah was getting at instead of necessarily the diameter or circumference of the city. Furthermore, he fought against the view that Nineveh didn't have mass repentance. He said, unlike some other people's opposition, that the prophetic mission to foreign enemies was not a common practice back then, Wiseman said that this type of activity was actually not infrequent in the ancient world. In that context, Jonah's short sermon predicting judgment would have been understood politically, if not religiously, by the Ninevites, and the king would have understood best. Wiseman postulated that perhaps they understood the judgment to be a coming invasion or a miraculous act such as an eclipse or an omen from one of their gods. So they they could have heard Jonah's words. He didn't mention Yahweh's name, so in that context the king and the people could have understood a coming enemy kingdom or one of their gods being angry with them and thus repented. So with those bits of information, we can conclude that although Wiseman did not unequivocally prove that Jonah happened, because that's outside of the sphere of archaeology, he did provide archaeological evidence to support the plausibility that Jonah could have happened, contrary to many objections that Jonah was impossible. And then again, we go back to Jesus Christ himself. These texts are found in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42, Matthew 16, 1 through 4, and Luke 11, 29 to 32. Jesus mentioned the sign of Jonah, his time in the fish, the repentance of the men of Nineveh, and the visit of the Queen of the South in the same breath. No one doubts the historicity of the Queen of the South, and Jesus used it and Nineveh's repentance as two reasons for the Pharisees' coming judgment of their unbelief. In this conversation, he also discussed his death and resurrection in terms of Jonah's time in the fish. We mentioned it earlier but it bears repeating because it carries a lot of exegetical weight. Jesus' death and resurrection, or at least his prediction of it, is grounded in this event of Jonah's time, not only in 
the great fish, but also the Ninevites' repentance and this Queen of Sheba. So with all of that said, I want to offer a conclusion to all of what I've said. While surveying the claims of people who doubt or deny the historicity of Jonah, it seems that they stem from two presuppositions. The first presupposition is that modern literary categories and scientific techniques are the necessary lenses through which to evaluate and understand ancient texts. Naturally, this approach produces incongruence for neither the Bible nor any of its parts claim to be a modern text or to utilize Western 21st century philosophies. Specifically, satire, as contemporary scholars define it, is not identical to genres that existed 2,700 years ago. To force these categories upon the biblical text is irresponsible, dishonest, and eisegetical, meaning we are reading our own meaning into the text as opposed to learning what the authors meant and getting that out of the text. Rather, the Bible speaks on its own terms, with its own claims, stru structures, and categories, so scholars must approach it with these to produce honest evaluations. Second, doubts stem from attempts to justify people's desire not to believe the biblical witness. Whether Christians say that a miracle is irrational, or atheists scoff at the notion that naturalism does not explain everything, people are searching for reasons not to believe scripture and to justify and excuse their unbelief. Jesus prophesied about these people with sober words. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's taken from Luke 16.31. Indeed, both presuppositions lead to a dismantling and deconstruction of the doctrine of biblical inerrancy and ultimately a rejection of Christ. People who do not have enough faith to trust that God could have preserved a man in a fish or an accurate historical record for thousands of years likely do not have enough faith to believe that a man rose from the dead because the latter miracle is greater than the former. Instead, it is best to approach and understand the biblical texts the way that their authors intended, as affirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Following the attested doctrine of biblical inerrancy, Jonah was intended to record historical events accurately, and Given that scripture reflects God's immutable truth and power, it is also best to trust the contents of the book as historically accurate. Jonah, therefore, was not a parable, but an accurate account of Yahweh's power and compassion as a sign looking forward to the salvific death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray you trust in him and his words and come to obey him as a loving disciple to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria.